So we're here today with Bas Eickhout from the Greens EFA group in the European Parliament to talk a little bit about the uh, global climate agreement that was signed in Paris uh, last December, and in particular, uh, why aviation and other transport emissions aren't included in it. So welcome, Bas. Um, Hello. Everyone knows you were at the, uh, everyone knows we agreed a deal in Paris uh, at the end of last year. You were there. Can you tell us a little bit about what was agreed? Well, I think most important what was agreed was that uh, that we are limit we will limit the warming well below two degrees, and that there is even a sentence in that saying that we should aim for staying below one and a half degrees. So I think that was the the most important decision. Of course, that needs to be translated in emission reductions. What does that mean? And there, uh, the agreement said that in the second century there should be a kind of a balance between emissions and sinks, so uptake of uh, of greenhouse gases. So. That's agreed upon, but now, of course, the big question is how are we going to translate that into action? That's that's now the next step to take. Okay, and uh, the big elephant in the room still, I guess, is the transport emissions, in particular aviation emissions. Why weren't they included in the deal? There's always a fight about it. It's 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 clearly. I mean, we're talking about international aviation and also international shipping. So these are global sectors, and and therefore they say, well. We have separate UN organizations for that, UN bodies, so they are there to tackle it. And please, in Paris or any, any UN decision on climate, don't, don't talk about us because we are a separate, uh, uh, a unique sector. So they, they love their uniqueness. Okay. Um, but hasn't the EU already tried to, to tackle this issue before at, at its own level? Yes, yes, the EU tried to, and I think that shows the uniqueness of the sector. They tried in 2008. Well, already before, in 2008, there was agreed upon that if the international organization of the UN, which is called ICAO, uh, they are responsible for uh, international aviation, if they don't get to a deal, then the EU will at least start for the EU level, including all the aviation emissions into its emission trading uh, system. So that was agreed upon. But the moment when they tried to include it, there was a, well, a, a global uh, upset, uproar from China, the United States, Russia, even threats to, to uh, not to continue buying Airbuses. So uh, really uh, heavy pressure on the EU to stop it. And that got us into this famous stop the clock, which meant that the EU said, OK, we give ICAO one more chance to come up with a global solution that in 2016, this year, and if not, then this stop the clock stops at the end of this year, meaning that the EU will tackle again aviation emissions itself and including it in its uh, emission trading system. Okay, so what's the chances of ICAO actually coming up with something by the end of the year? Then? I think that's the $1 billion question, <laughs> isn't it? Um, they're working on it. Uh, they call it a global market-based measure. Everyone is using its own terminology, right? So it's a global MBM. If you're in ICAO, then global MBM is the word to <laughs> use. And um, they are working on it. And they set themselves, of course, a deadline for end of September. Then they are having their general assembly. And then it should be agreed upon by all the parties who are member of this ICAO whether they will manage. Well, probably it's going to be a very, well, unclear deal where there's a lot of implementation needed after 2016. And then it will be a tough question for Europe. Is this enough what we agreed upon at the, at the ICAO level? So ICAO represents the airline industry, or is it a UN body, or, or what? <laughs> Formally, <laughs> you have two answers to that. You have the formal <laughs> answer. It's a UN body, so countries are member, and it's it's a political body in the end. But but 
in reality, it's uh, well, it started in 46. So it was really starting as a very technical body, just saying that, well, for security reasons, it's, it might be good that all the pilots all over the world are looking at the same landing uh, zones, that every airfield is having the same letters, even the same color. So they decided on the color so that a pilot knew, okay, this is what how we uh, how I should land my airplane, right? So that was indeed very technical, and and that's how it started for global uh, for a global sector as aviation is. But more and more political issues are now on their plate, and one of the more politic most political issues is of course how to tackle climate change because they are emitting a lot. They are emitting now more or less two percent, but it's really increasing sharply. It's expected to three increase threefold. So um, they need to tackle now climate change, and that has become very political. But given that technical background, the industry is at the table to provide technical assistance. But they are at the table doing more than that, of course. They are very influential in what ICAO is deciding. So formally it's a UN body, but in practice it is, it is heavy influenced by industry. And does this mean it's being held back in its ambitions, perhaps? Uh, I think you could say that, yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, until now, the, the international aviation really didn't do anything at, uh, at, at climate change, tackling climate change. I think this year is for the first time they did some actions. But still, what they are now discussing is a target for themselves saying, OK, after 2020, we will pursue carbon neutral growth which means they increase until 2020, and from that moment on there will be uh, no growth in emissions anymore. But if you know that all the other sectors need to reduce by 40%, 50%, and that international aviation has the luxury to put themselves a target of just being stable after 2020, it shows that here probably industry is a bit too powerful here. Yeah. Uh, I understand they were meeting in Montreal in Canada last month, uh, this eco uh, body. What was going on there? I mean, uh, didn't people from the members of the parliament go and didn't they have trouble getting in? Well, I think that that clearly shows the difficulties, or at least the culture that they're having there. Um, they have never had any parliamentary visit yet to the to such a meeting. So they first said, but, but what are you coming to do? Because this is for technical experts and you are not technical experts. Well, on that front, they're right. I'm a parliamentarian. I'm, I'm, I'm a politician. So I'm not a technical expert. But it's, a, of course, strange because they were deciding, for example, for the first time ever on a CO2 efficiency standard for airplane engines. So that is more than technical. That's political. So we just wanted to listen to what's going on there. Uh, we were not allowed in the room. I even heard that they were discussing whether we were allowed to go to Montreal. But there they, they realized that's maybe a bit strange to even not allow them into a city, right? And as far as I know, Canada is a pretty free city, <laughs> uh, country. So we were allowed in the end in Montreal. And in the end, we even got into the building. We even talked to people, other countries, members of ICAO. But we never got into the formal meetings, no. What, what was going on there, do you think? I mean, is it because that they're afraid of... You raising the standards too much or, or what? I think for a lot of technical experts, I mean, these people, they are, they are there on behalf of their member states, but they are because of their technical knowledge. I think they fairly think that as soon as it's becoming political, it's becoming more difficult. And that is true, of course. But an issue like climate change is political. And the way ICAO is working is always creating consensus. So they can talk for years and decades until there's consensus and then they take a step. That's how they work. 
well, with climate change, and that's what was also what I told them, sorry, but, you know, maybe for climate change, you need to hurry up a bit. And you need a bit more political pressure. So that's why we were there. And I think for them, it's just a new world. It's just a new political field. They're not used to it, and they just have to adapt to it. That's the positive uh, uh, spin of it, I would say. And then that's fair enough. So, But they have to get used to it. So the next meeting, we will try to come as well. So from now on, the political spotlight will be on them because they are taking political decisions. And climate can't wait until everyone in the world is feeling comfortable that they can take a step. So in terms of the EU's decision to stop the clock, is that that's the kind of political pressure you're, you're talking about? Is that, has, has it done enough, the EU, to try and push the debate forward? Yeah, well, here you see that the EU is also becoming a bit more cautious. And, and I think they are too cautious at the moment. They, they have a bit of a trauma of this uh, stop the clock uh, pressure they got. So three years ago, when the previous General Assembly was there, they were totally isolated. So all the European technical experts from the countries were telling us, oh, but don't mention this stop the clock because it's seen as a threat and that might be counterproductive. So, well, I do see the point that every time you say, hey, hey, but if you're not delivering, we are going to uh, we are going to take it into our emission trading system. Okay, don't mention it every minute. But at the same time, the European countries are now a bit, they are so cautious that you can't really see anymore that the EU is leading the debate. For example, this CO2 efficiency standard for engines that was agreed upon in February in Montreal, the US was more ambitious than the EU. So maybe the EU was this in this leading role in 2008, but they are so traumatized almost that they don't, don't dare to speak out anymore and that now even other countries are becoming more ambitious than the Europeans. I think there we, we have to put a bit more pressure on the Europeans themselves as well, but okay, that's where we have a European Parliament for, right? Good. So could we ever see... Uh, aviation emissions in the ETS then, for example? Is that the kind of thing that we're moving towards or, or not? Well, I think, I still hope, let's, okay, let's, let's do the formal line here. Let's hope IKEA will get to a solution this year. Uh, it means they have a high-level meeting in May and then the General Assembly in September, October. So let's just assume they will get to a deal. But then, of course, one of the big questions is how do we distribute the efforts? Because every... Uh, airline industry then needs to take up a kind of an emission reduction target or at least uh, a stability target. And then, of course, Europe needs to decide how to do that for the European ones. I still can see that as part of this global market-based measure agreed upon at ICAO level, that the EU will say that will mean for us making it part of the emission trading system. So these kind of uh, follow-ups will be happening, can happen, but first ICAO needs to deliver and the deadline is really this year. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed that they manage to get an agreement then between their technical experts without the politicians putting the pressure on them. Well, I think the political pressure needs to be on. So we will be there. We will be there in May. We will be there in September in order to make sure to them, okay, technical experts, it's nice you're there. But in the end, this is a political decision and we will keep the pressure on. Good. Let's, uh, let's have an update from you when you come back from the next trip. Thanks. Will do. Thanks.